0: Now I want you, if you've got your bulletin handy, you don't have to dig it out if it's not, but on the front of our bulletins every Sunday, I don't know if you see this or not, but we have a, a mission statement uh, it's printed on the front of our bulletins every single Sunday. And sometimes these things just become invisible after a while because we, we just get so used to seeing them. They're just kind of visual noise. But uh, I want you to look at this statement on the front of our bulletin. The statement says this. It says, South Shore Baptist Church exists to glorify God. That's the one thing we exist to do is to glorify God. We're going to do that in two ways, by worshiping Him and by making disciples for Christ of people from the South Shore and beyond. We exist for one reason, to glorify God. We're going to do it in two ways. We're going to worship Him and we're going to make disciples of people from our immediate community and beyond. So this morning, we've done well already to accomplish the first part of that, to worship the Lord. But what about that other part? What about the whole disciple-making part of that statement? How are we going to get that done? Well, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1-7 through answers that question for us. The passage we're going to study this morning lifts our eyes to the world around us, and it injects so much strength and courage and boldness in us to pray for the lost and to share the gospel with the lost. Uh, we started our study in First Timothy a couple of weeks ago, and I, I want you to remember why we're in uh, First Timothy. Uh, just at the end of March, we had the incredible privilege to send out brothers and sisters from our church to start a new church in Situate. And so we sent down the road a lot of wonderful friends and wonderful uh, workers and leaders and institutional memory. And in the wake of that incredible privilege... To have another gospel preaching church born on the South Shore, Um, we saw fit to root ourselves once again in our identity. Who are we as a church? What does the Lord require of us? How do we move forward? How do we stop from just saying, okay, that work's done, now we can get back to doing nothing? How do we continue to press forward in the power of the Holy Spirit? First Timothy is a book that helps us uh, in this regard. And so, Paul writes this letter to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy is the leader of a church in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, The church at Ephesus, Paul has a long history there. He founded the church. He spent a lot of time in that town. It's a hard place to start a church. It is not the Bible Belt of the Middle East. It is a really, really hard place. And it's exactly the kind of place where God would want a church, but this church has dealt with all kinds of struggles, and chief among them has been false teachers that have come up from inside the church. They're mutilating the law of God, mutilating the gospel, turning the church inward in fighting and exclusive practices. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage Timothy and to correct the church, to turn the church outward in its practice of speaking the gospel to those around it. And so when it comes to being an evangelistic church or an evangelistic Christian. This is a characteristic that we just talk about as being natural. It's just Christianity 101 that we would be the kinds of people who evangelize. We share our story. We make disciples of people from the South Shore and beyond. That's a core characteristic of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But if someone wanted to know, is South Shore Baptist Church an evangelistic church, how would we show them that? We could show them our Uh, Our official documents, our, our membership covenant, our doctrinal statement, and we speak to evangelism and its importance in those things for sure. So our documents have it right. But if they didn't have our documents, could they look at our lives and say, that's a church that's serious about loving lost people and taking the gospel to them and sharing it personally? And what about you personally? How Would someone know that you are an evangelistic Christian? Again, we've got our theological ducks in a row. But could you show them from your life? Could they just look at your life and know this is a person who naturally shares the gospel of Jesus Christ because they love the Lord and they love the people they're talking to? That's the challenge. The challenge for us is not so much what do our documents say. The challenge is what do our lives say? And that's where Paul is going to press in this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2. When it comes to evangelism, it's an area that we operate in so much fear and with so many excuses, and that's exactly why we are Paul's target audience this morning. So here's my goal today in our study. My purpose today is for you to develop a passion to regularly pray for the lost and share the gospel with the lost. If we study these seven verses correctly, we get to the other side of this morning with a passion to pray for the lost and to share the gospel with the lost. So I want to show you in this passage four components of an evangelistic church. You could personalize that. Four components of of an evangelistic life. Paul gives them to us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Follow along with me as I read. Paul writes this. He says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, Intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul's scope is global. It's massive. And he is sharing that vision of things with the church. Here are four components of an evangelistic church or an evangelistic life. The first component is this. It's the church's prayer for all people. If we're going to be a church that's serious about the gospel and about evangelism, we've got to be a church that prays for all people. So verses 1 and 2. Paul, you'll remember at the end of chapter 1 or throughout chapter 1, he's just eviscerated the false teachers in the church, and he's encouraged Timothy to press forward in his work of leading the church. And so how's Timothy to do that? He tells Timothy, you need to fight the good fight. How will Timothy fight the good fight? Chapter two, verse one, pray. Uh, Many years ago, I was having a lunchtime conversation with a friend who at the time was not being a good husband. And he said, I need you to to give me some direction, but I don't want anything cliche like pray. If you think in... Audience with the God of all creation is cliche, then I've got nothing better for you. Every great woman and man of God are people of prayer. Everyone. There's no one who's great in the eyes of God that hasn't spent time in the ears of God. Christian people pray. And so Paul says to Timothy, Here's how you're going to fight the good fight you're going to pray. But not just any kind of prayer. Not Paul's very specific here. He's not just talking about prayer in a general way. But he gives words to the type of prayer he wants Timothy and the church to undertake. So if we dip down into verses 3 and 4, we find the content of that prayer. Verse 3, he says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What kind of praying Does Paul urge the church to do? Well, Paul is calling the church to evangelistic praying. He urges for requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving for people to trust in Jesus for their salvation. Paul uses four different words in verse one to to describe prayer. Um, And I, I don't think those four different words are intended to describe four different types of prayer. If anything, I think it's just Paul repeating the same type of word in different ways. So requests, prayers, and intercession, essentially the same things. We're asking God, we're urging God, God, move, please rescue people, awaken them to faith. Lord, save them. And we do that with thanksgiving. Thank you that you've saved me. Thank you that you are moving. Thank you that I don't have to woo you to this. We ask with thanksgiving for the lost. The church that has a heart like God's prays urgently for the lost. The Christian that has a heart like God's will pray urgently for the lost. Paul says he wants prayers for all men. I think that probably includes two names at the end of chapter one. You remember these two names at the end of chapter one that Paul talked about? Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse 20. These guys are described as having shipwrecked their faith. We, we think they're probably some of the false teachers that were tearing people away from the gospel. And so they've been put under church discipline. But although they've been removed from the church's assembly, they should not be removed from the church's prayer. I want prayer for all men. Hymenaeus and Alexander need the grace of Jesus Christ for their salvation. We don't pray just for the likable people. We pray for all people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So my question for you is not how often do you pray, it's how often do you pray specifically for lost people to be saved? And I don't even just mean that in general, like, dear God, save some people. I mean, you are putting names before the throne of God. How often are you lifting your children, or your spouse, or your nieces and nephews, your neighbors and coworkers, your parents, how often are you bringing their names before the Lord? Have you ever considered the reality that you might be the only person who ever prays for the salvation of the one God's put on your heart. I think it is uncommon in so many ways that someone comes to faith in Christ with many people praying for them. It is a a beautiful blessing. I know that uh, I have a godly, incredible grandmother And she prayed for me to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't know who else did. So you've got this huge divine privilege and task to pray for the salvation of the people in your life. And when you pray, don't ever feel like you're doing lesser work. One of my Christian pet peeves is the exasperated line, well, I guess all we can do is pray. Well, yeah, that is all you can do, believe it or not. Prayer is not the, the final choice after you've exhausted all of your efforts and abilities. Rain on that. Listen, you pray and you obey. You pray and you work. You pray and you trust. If all you can do is pray, if all you can do is ask the God of creation and salvation to move heaven's resources to earth, how could you improve on that? It's not lesser work to pray. This is what... The Lord wants for his church. So, if Paul had stopped his instructions there, we'd be okay with it. But he goes on, verse 2, to talk more about the types of people we should pray for. In verse 2, we need to pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We've got to pray for kings, people in authority. And a a Democrat somewhere said, well, at least he didn't say president, (laughs) And last administration, Republicans said, "Well, at least he didn't say president." Uh, hey, this is where it gets really sticky. Paul's going to press in some really sensitive areas of our lives. Christians pray for the welfare of their leaders. I want to say that again, and I'm going to say it slow so you can write it down. Christians pray for the welfare of their leaders. Period. No contingencies attached. This is what God's Word gives us. We pray for the welfare of our leaders. We don't know the exact date that Paul wrote this letter. got some general ideas. It's possible he wrote it during the reign of Nero. Nero had a reputation for perverted cruelty towards Christians. It was a cruelty that made his uh, fellow pagans uncomfortable. And if Paul can pray for Nero, you can pray for any leader in authority over you, anyone. It may be hard for us to understand. I'm still trying to understand it better and learn it as a regular practice. But one thing that's helped me is a book I read a, a while ago called Back to Jerusalem. It's by a guy named Paul Hadaway, and it describes the spread of the gospel through communist China in recent years and the work of the underground church to take the gospel from China's eastern shores all the way through the west back towards Jerusalem. Uh, one of the leaders in that movement is a man named, who goes by the name Brother Yun. And Brother Yun's quoted and talks about how Christians in China felt about their oppressive communist regime. I want you to see his words here. He says, The past 50 years of suffering, persecution, and torture of the house churches in China were all part of God's training for us. He's used the government for his own purposes, molding and shaping his children as he sees fit. That's why I correct Western Christians who tell me, I've been praying for years that the communist government in China will collapse so Christians can live in freedom. This is not what we pray. We never pray against our government or call down curses on it. Instead, we've learned that God is in control of both our own lives and the government we live under. Instead of focusing our prayers against any political system, we pray that regardless of what happens to us, we will be pleasing to God. Don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects His love and power. This is true freedom. Not a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. If you cannot pray for your leaders because you disagree with them, then you forget who sits on the throne. You forget that God is the King of kings. He's in control. Christians pray for the welfare of their leaders, and we do so with an agenda. We're sneaky about it. We, we want them to do well, to be well, to be good husbands, wives, parents, whatever role they fulfill. But we've got a distinct agenda. At the end of verse 2, pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We want leaders to lead well, to live well, so that we can be at peace with those who are in authority over us. This is ultimately good for the gospel. So the church's reputation with her civic leaders is of vital importance in the New Testament. Multiple places, Paul calls us to have a a good reputation with outsiders. And and here especially, as we pray for leaders, we're doing so so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. Look, the goal of this prayer is not our own tranquility. The goal of this prayer is gospel invasion. (laughs) We want to pray for them that they would do well for us and to us. And in that environment, we have freedom to share the gospel and see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So the church's reputation in her community matters. And we've got to be careful here, of course. Um, The goal is not a good reputation, whatever the cost. The reality is gospel faithfulness may cost us a reputation, and that's okay. Gospel fidelity far outweighs good reputation even happened to Paul in Ephesus. If you look at Acts chapter 19 verse 9, in his early days in Ephesus as he's preaching the gospel, he is publicly maligned. He didn't have a good reputation. They hated Paul. But he was faithful to the gospel. So we carry this charge in balance. We walk forward with loyalty to Jesus Christ above all else and we pray for our leaders and strive for a good reputation in the community. South Shore Baptist Church needs a better reputation in Hingham. I recognize that we represent many different communities. We're a church for the South Shore, and Hingham is very underrepresented in our church membership. I think we bear a unique responsibility to this community in which our church sits and in which we worship, especially when we consider how pervasive and entrenched lostness is here. We've got to be really intentional and really focused on building gospel bridges with our neighbors. And so in the months ahead, I'm going to ask you to volunteer at a few different civic things. Wherever Hingham draws a crowd, we want to be there. If they're drawing a crowd, we want South Shore Baptist Church to be represented there as much as we can. So um, for the 4th of July road race and for the fourth of july parade for christmas in the square things like this are where we want to have a presence and i want to ask you to step up and make that happen here's how we shape this reputation though ultimately it's not just by being present at events it's it's the way you carry yourself and the way you love your neighbors and the way you're you're a homeroom mother or you're engaged in little league or whatever it is that you do those things as you represent christ as a member of this church you shape the reputation of our church in this community So Christians, pray for the lost, and we pray for our leaders so that the gospel might flourish. Let's practice that right now. Let's take a moment together, and let's pray together for our leaders. Father God, thank you for this command that you have given us, and here's what I know for sure, that uh, this is a group of people who are well acquainted with praying for our leaders. And so I'm grateful for that shape our hearts that we would pray for their welfare, not for their demise, no matter their policies, no matter their platforms. Lord, uh, we ask that you would give wisdom to our president, to all of our representatives, all the way down to our local selectmen. Uh, Lord, give them wisdom that they would lead well. Help us to remember that they are people, they are men and women. So we ask that for those who are married that you would help them to be great spouses and for those who have children that they would be great uh, parents. For those who are grandparents that they would, uh, that they would uh, spoil their grandchildren lavishly. And Lord, we pray ultimately that for every person that you've placed in authority over us that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want leaders who follow you, Lord God, move in their hearts do not let them be corrupted by power lord may they be humbled at the cross it's in jesus name we pray amen second component of an evangelistic church or an evangelistic life is god's desire for all people we've got a church that's praying and that church is going to align its praying with god's desire for all people and what's God's desire for all people look at verse 3 he says this is good and pleases God our savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth uh, verse 3 the word this this is good what is the this that Paul's referring to well he's pointing back to the prayer he's just told us about prayer for the salvation of all people for the effectiveness of our civic leaders this is what pleases God So this is a really important verse because it tells us that this type of praying is not optional for the Christian church. Praying for the lost is as mandatory, as obligatory, as is worship, as is the preaching of the word, as is the ordinances, we must be people who pray, a church who prays for the lost. And why is that so important? Verse 4, because God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And that verse can cause a a little bit of trouble sometimes. Uh, God wants all men to be saved. Does that mean God is a universalist? I mean, after all, if God is the king, doesn't the king get what he wants? So surely this has to happen, uh, that God wants everyone to be saved, therefore everyone will be saved. Well, the answer, of course, sadly, is no, not everyone will be saved. That's not at all what this verse means. It's clear even from 1 Timothy that not everyone will be saved. In chapter 4, verse 24, Paul talks about those who are condemned and judged in their sins. Uh, It's also possible here that when Paul says God wants all men to be saved, that Paul isn't referencing every single person on the planet, but rather he's talking about all types of people. Here in a little bit, he's going to call himself an apostle to the Gentiles. And in a church where false teaching has turned it inward and made it exclusive Paul's turning it outwards by showing it the gospel and saying God wants people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue to be saved. But another reason this doesn't speak to universalism either is uh, because there is a profound difference between what God desires and what God decrees. Though God clearly desires that all people, that every person might be saved, God knows that it, it will not happen beginning of chapter 4, we're told that He sends His Spirit to indicate that some people are going to abandon the faith. So in other words, God longs for those whom He knows will not ultimately be saved. Sometimes this verse is at the center of a debate on election versus free will. And that's a good conversation to have, and this is a great verse to infuse into that conversation. But it's really too bad that this verse would become merely fodder for debate when really it ought to be fuel for your evangelism. Who cares if you win the debate if you're not sharing the same heart that God has, if you're not speaking the gospel the way the Lord calls us to? God wants all men to be saved. So the question is, does your heart want what God wants? I don't know about you, but I... Constantly have to course correct my heart. My heart wants ease, tranquility, naps, barbecue. So when I pray for the lost, well, it shapes my heart so that it looks more like God's. I want, I desire what God wants. But when my praying just resembles my heart, when my praying is just about my ease, My wants, the things that I've decided that I need, well, then my my praying's materialistic. It's full of ego. It's selfish. That type of praying does not create a person who wants what God wants. Christians want what God wants. Christians want salvation for all people. We follow a God who wants you to be saved and who desires that all people would be saved. So let's stop and pray for a moment. I want you to join me in prayer, and let's pray now for the salvation of of people we know. So we'll take just a few moments of silence, and you've got a name or two on your mind. Maybe it's a prayer you've visited a thousand times or more, but once more, let's take a moment and pray by name in the quiet of your own heart for salvation to come to these people we love. And Father, with our brevity comes urgency. You know these names. And you know their appointed time. Lord God, would you move soon and now and use us that these that we love and that you love would come to a knowledge of the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the church that evangelizes, the life that evangelizes, it. it prays right. It has the right heart. It it aligns itself with God's wants. Third component of this evangelistic life, evangelistic church, is Christ's ransom for all people. We've got the church's prayer, God's desire, and Christ's ransom for all people. Verses 5 and 6 are just stunning. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. The good people of the city of Ephesus believed in many gods. And in Ephesus, at the time that these words were written, was this incredible temple, really a marvel of architecture and magnitude. Uh, It was a temple to the goddess Artemis. And gross things happened there. And gross things happened everywhere these polytheistic gods uh, were ascribed to. And it's against that backdrop in a town where the sale of idols was a key um, part of the economy. It's against that backdrop that Paul writes, there is one God among the people who are living their own truth, worshiping their own gods in their own way, doing the best they can, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Paul says that Jesus is our mediator and our ransom. Let's talk about Jesus as our mediator. If there's a great gulf between sinful man and holy, holy, holy God then the bridge that brings us together is Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh, eternally preexistent. He is the Creator. There's nothing that's made that wasn't made through Him. And that eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God lowered Himself. He descended to us. He took on flesh. He's born of a virgin. And we knew Him as Jesus And He lived His life to teach us and show us the love of God and the kingdom of God and He came to lay down His life for us. This is how He acts as a mediator. He takes the death that our sin requires. He died in our place on the cross and three days later He rose from the dead and that means every promise in Him is true. That What He commits to, He does. He has salvation to give. Now if we were to get lost back in verse 4 where it says God desires all men to be saved, all we've got to do is step down here to verse 5 and realize that those who will be saved are only those who come through Jesus Christ, the mediator. That's the good news, that there is a way for man to be made right with God. And I think it's worth noting that Jesus is an approachable mediator what i mean is that you can and should come to him directly uh, earlier we read from hebrews chapter 4 that we can come before the throne of grace boldly to receive mercy many people from protestant traditions have this view of jesus as perpetually angry and therefore we we operate in an atmosphere of guilt with him. Jesus is never pleased. We always got to make him like us more. People from Catholic backgrounds also wrestle with this same kind of perception of a mediator, yes, redeemer, yes, but still unapproachable, angry, not bent towards me, and therefore I need others to go on my behalf to secure these blessings. I need these saints, I need his mother to go and do this for me. But I don't know how you can read these verses and think that Jesus is not for you. God wants all men to be saved. Jesus is the mediator who gave himself. And therefore, we need no one else to go for us to him to win, us, to win our favor to him or to woo him our way. Look, we can go boldly before the throne of grace and ask for mercy. And there we find a Savior who loves us. We don't need a line of people pleading our case. We've got Jesus Christ who has pled the case and done it perfectly. He's our mediator who loves us, who trusts us. Not only that, He's the one who's paid our ransom. He gave Himself as a ransom for all men. That He gave Himself speaks of His self-sacrifice. That He's the ransom for all men shows us that He's our substitute. And doesn't that remind you of a passage we read a few months ago, Mark? 10, verse 45, Jesus himself said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, these verses, which speak of Christ as our mediator and Christ as our ransom, our substitute, these are motivations for sharing our faith. That's why Paul places them here. He calls us to prayer, gives us a glimpse into the heart of God, and then lays out the gospel for us. So that the church that has experienced the gospel will also share the gospel. That the Christian who has been brought from death to life through faith in Christ would tell the story to other people. It's a natural outcome and it's the right motivation. We're not going to share our faith with others because it's mandated and we have to and if we don't then God's going to get angry and this is how we get His favor. That's, not it. That's wrong motivation. Motivation matters. He's loved us. And he's demonstrated that love. We've experienced that love, and it's natural for us to share. My wife and I have four beautiful daughters. And when each of those four girls made their entrances into our family, I didn't have to be threatened to talk about them. I didn't have to go to people and say, here's my new kid. Here's five facts about her. My wife says, I have to tell you this, and then she'll be happy with me. Boom, our life has changed forever. Blast radius is deep and significant. And I'm going to tell you all about this kid. And I don't need to be coached. And I don't don't worry if you're going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. And I'm not doing it to secure anyone's favor. I've been given this blessing. I want to share that blessing. And that's what we do with our salvation. God's love has come to our lives And so how could we not talk about what Christ has done for us and what Christ has done for those whom he desires to be saved? It's our experience of the gospel, our knowledge of the gospel that that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life that motivates us to pray and proclaim the good news. Let's stop for one second and let's pray and let's give thanks to Jesus, our mediator and our ransom. We thank you for laying down your life. Jesus, we thank you for lowering yourself. We thank you for not clutching onto the glory of heaven, but taking on flesh and going all the way to the cross. Thank you for making a way for us, a way that we could not make on our own. Thank you for paying a price for us, a price that we could not pay on our own. Thank you for the love in which all of this comes. You are a loving approachable, gentle, merciful Savior, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One last component of the church that evangelizes. This church is going to pray for the lost. We're going to share God's desires. We're going to celebrate Christ's ransom. And then finally, the church that evangelizes has a message to all people. Final component, the church's message to all people. Verse 7, Paul says, For this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So Paul closes this passage by speaking of his office, his responsibilities. He's a herald. That means he's a preacher or an announcer for the king. He's an apostle. That means he's one who's sent with a special commission. He's a teacher. That means he's one who unfolds the truth of the gospel to other people. And Paul's point here is not just to tell us about how the gospel impacted his life to make him a gospel teller. He's showing Timothy and the church at Ephesus and the church on the south shore that every person who has experienced the gospel is called to tell the story of Jesus Christ. And so, Paul points us outward, gives us this global scope. We've, we're praying for the lost, we're sharing God's heart for the lost, we, we are motivated by our experience of the gospel, and we're going to share that message with people around us. It happens in really natural ways. I saw this demonstrated in a really awesome way a few months ago. I brought a friend of mine out, uh, my best friend John from Oklahoma, and he spoke at our student retreat last September. And then... Uh, uh, he hung around an extra day or two. I took him to a Red Sox game. And um, a group of college students, these uh, five or six college guys uh, who are all from India, sat right next to John. And uh, the guy who sat right next to John turned to him and said, this is my first baseball game ever. I need you to teach me. (laughs) And so, John did, and I, I couldn't hear all of the conversation, but John's leaned in to this guy. I mean, John introduces himself, he introduces himself, and John's explaining, okay, this guy's throwing the ball. And have you ever thought about how complicated it is to describe baseball to someone who's never seen it before? Oh, impossible. And so John's trying to explain all this, this is what a ball is, and this is the plate, and this is, and this is why this guy's running, and this, all. So, so he's doing all of that. And so I'm just, I'm just seeing John's gestures, he's a very handsy talker. He's gesturing to the field. And then I noticed after a little bit, John's gestures changed. And he's doing more pointing back and forth between him and the guy, and he points up. And, and, and so what happened was the guy asked John, are you from around here? And John said, no, I'm from Oklahoma. But I'm in town this weekend with my buddy here, and uh, I've been, I'm a pastor, a Christian pastor, and I've been teaching his teenagers uh, about the love of Jesus Christ. That just opened a whole world of conversation. And so this old boy got two innings of baseball and seven innings of Jesus. And that's, that's what anyone can do. It doesn't take someone who's, you know, level 12 Christian. It doesn't take someone trained to be an elite. It just takes someone with an experience of the gospel because you're called and equipped by God to be a herald to be a teacher. We'll leave apostle to Paul, but a herald and a teacher, that's you. You are saved to tell this story. And so let's stop real quick and let's pray that God would give us boldness in our witness. Father, when we think about sharing our faith with people, for so many of us, it's something that comes with fear and trepidation and hesitation and worry Just as we've come boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy, let us go boldly in our witness to tell the story that's changed our lives because this is the vehicle through which faith comes to those that you desire to be yours. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes from the Word of God. They can't believe unless someone tells the story. Let that be us. Lord God, give us boldness in our witness and confidence. In your love for those with whom we share. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've shown you today four different components of an evangelistic church. We're going to pray for all people, align our hearts with God's heart. We're motivated by our experience of the gospel, and we tell that story. My goal today has been to instill in you a passion to pray for the lost and to share the gospel. So that's what this passage does for us. I hope that's the way you walk out of here this morning. It certainly calls us to examine our hearts. Do I want what God wants? And if my answer is no, it could be that the reason I don't want what God wants is because I don't know God. But God knows you, and here's what God wants for you. He wants you to be saved, and He wants you to come to a knowledge of the truth. So far, without Jesus, you have not been living in truth, but this is what He wants for you. So whoever you are and whatever you've done, you are loved by God and you are wanted by God. He calls you today to trust Him as your Savior. And what do you get when you bring together a group of people on a weekly basis who once were dead in their sin, who once carried a debt they could not pay, who have experienced the love of God, our Savior, and the rescue of Jesus Christ, our mediator, who gave himself as our ransom, a people who once were lost but now are found. What do you get? Well, you get a church that will glorify God by making disciples for Christ of people from the South Shore and beyond. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word to us. You desire that all men would be saved. We put our names under that banner. Thank you, God, that you have wanted these men, these women for your kingdom. And you want so many more. So, Lord God, let that start this morning with each one of us, that we would examine our hearts before you, that we wouldn't leave this building without knowing that Jesus Christ is our Savior. Gotta pray for my brothers and sisters in here in the faith that we would be known by our works, saved by grace through faith, known by our trust in that gospel to share the story. Thank you for the prayer you've called us to, the words you've given us to pray, the gospel that motivates that prayer, and the story we tell as a result to see many come to faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.